Hamza Yusuf, 26,000 and 32. This represents 52.1% final vote. I therefore declare Hamza Yusuf duly elected as the Scottish National Party leader. Hello, and we are back with episode 111 of Ballot to Talk About. It is Sunday, the 2nd of April, 2023, and joining me as always is my co-host Sam. Well, Sam, we've been away for a few uh, a week or so. How's everything going? Yes, everything's well here. Um, how was your trip? Well, it was very good, thank you. Nice to get away. Very much more tanner, um, having spent quite a lot of the time in the sun. And I'm pleased to report to our listeners that I did try, although it's significantly more restrictions than you've had, to try and look out for the parliaments of the two countries in which I visited as well. So can't quite switch That's off. That's what we like to hear. <laughs> can't quite switch off, and I have I have to say. And uh, um, but yeah, it was definitely very impressive buildings and architecture. It's a shame that I couldn't quite get in. And have you been managed to? keep up with all the politicking on the other side of the globe while you've been away? Well, thanks to a wonderful invention called uh, paying for 4G and <laughs> Twitter. Um, so far, that method is still working. I was able to uh, keep abreast with all the news that have been taking place. And indeed, one of the news that we will be talking about this week was the fact that we now know who the new leader of the Scottish national party is and who last tuesday was sworn in as first minister because and in this week's podcast we will be taking a look back at the leadership election and unpacking the legacy of nicola sturgeon after 20 years as first minister deputy first minister and being one of the most prominent faces of both scottish politics and the smp itself so sam let's set the scene a little bit what has happened and just wind the clock back to what caused Nicola Sturgeon's resignation and describe the leadership election uh, that has been taking place since a short resignation in two months ago, isn't it? Yeah, so mid-February, we got the announcement from Nicola Sturgeon that she would be resigning as leader of the SNP and consequently First Minister, which the resignation itself, I don't think, came as a significant surprise because there has been quite a significant amount of turmoil within the top of the Scottish National Party, dating back to about autumn of last year when we were seeing the same sort of thing happen in Westminster over the resignation of Ian Blackford. But I think it's worth saying, Churn, that it was a bit of a surprise, the timing, because the announcement came out of relative nowhere. I think pundits and political observers alike were taken a bit aback um, when we got this announcement that there would be a press conference from Nicola Sturgeon that morning. But it seemed to be tr immediately triggered by the fallout from the Gender Recognition Act um, in Scotland and the subsequent UK government reaction to that. And also a number of questions surrounding SNP finances. And it should be noted that as a consequence of the latter, and some lack of disclosures about SNP membership figures during this campaign, both Peter Morrill, who is Nicola Sturgeon's husband, um, stepped down as chief executive of the party, and Murray Fott also stepped down. It's been quite a turbulent month for the Scottish National Party, but after numerous oft-mooted candidates declined to enter the race, we had a three-way contest between Ash Regan, former Community Safety Minister, Kate Forbes, the former Finance Secretary who had been on maternity leave at the time, and Hamza Youssef, the former Health Secretary in Nicola Sturgeon's government. And it was Hamza Youssef who came out on top with 52.1% in the second round against closest rival Kate Forbes who finished on 47.9%, which for those long-term observers of British politics, 52.48 is quite a familiar figure. Um, and first preferences, just so we've noted them down as well, Hamza Youssef got 48.2%, Kate Forbes got 40.7%, and Ash Regan was on 11.1%, with about two-thirds of her support flowing to Kate Forbes as we head into the second round. So 
Yusuf became the sixth first minister of Scotland and the first Muslim holder of that office as well, which now means, Churn, I think it's worth saying we have a Muslim first minister of Scotland, Muslim mayor of London, and also a Hindu prime minister, which I think is a, um, a great representation of the religiously and ethically diverse country we have in the UK. So, yeah, we have that is the story of Nicola Sturgeon's resignation. So, Churn, the result, first of all, is it a surprise to you? Um, I don't think, particularly when we discuss what happened to Kate Forbes's campaign a little bit or later on, I don't think, that, I think everyone was kind of expecting Hamza Yusuf to win the leadership election. However, and particularly if you look at the first preference votes, Hamza Yusuf has got 48% in the first round. And I think that is just too close for to 50% for any other candidate to catch up. Even Kate Forbes, who got 41%, that is still too much. Of, Hamza Yusuf was just too close to the winning line too, in order for anybody but himself to win. But just taking if we look back at the overall result, the 52 48 does sound as if the SNP is split. And it is split according to a number of lines. I don't think that we have seen very much because Nicola Sturgeon had such a dominating effect on the SNP and on Scottish politics for such a long period of time that we're now seeing the various sub-factions and the various ideological components of the SNP membership really come to the fray. And do not forget that in 2014, uh, I'm just looking at the last time in which there was a contested SNP leadership election. I mean, the SNP has had a contested leadership election of its members for over 20 years, isn't it, Sam? So this is really the first indication of what SNP membership is composed of. And I think that tells a very interesting story that, yes, they might be united over the theory of independence, but I do think of some of the other issues we're really seeing a real divide in the SNP. And that to me is the real surprising thing about it, just because of how dominating Sturgeon is, we haven't seen that before. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right to point out that it was the first real test we've had of SNP ideology for quite some time, and it was divided results. I think I agree with you that it wasn't a huge shock that Hamza Youssef came out on top because I think the first few weeks of the campaign really set the tone that Kate Forbes was going to face an uphill battle to defeat Hamza Youssef. And I think once we saw candidates like Angus Robertson declare that they weren't going to run, it really was going to be Hamza Youssef's to lose. Um, but I think Kate Forbes pulling it back so close to me was a bit of a surprise because I th I think a lot of people had written her off um, going into this campaign. So to come 52-48 by the end, either is a, a glowing indictment on Kate Forbes' campaign or conversely is a negative indictment on Hamza Youssef's candidacy and campaign. But that's up for discussion in a second, I think. Um, but what I will say about the surprise is we did have very little idea about what the SNP membership was and what its ideology was because the party has sort of become a mix of young progressives and old rural nationalists, which is the, the more traditional base of the Scottish National Party. And given what we found out about how much the SNP membership had dropped over the last few years, we didn't really know what the remaining membership looked like. So really, it was very difficult to predict where this contest was going to go because you had this rift between SNP voters and SNP members. So really any result was going to be a bit of a surprise because we really didn't know where their opinion sat. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. You talk about this two nationalism, two nationalists, the old rural nationalists, and I would say the more progressive urban nationalists, I think really centred upon Glasgow, because don't forget Glasgow voted uh, for independence in 2014, albeit narrowly. And Glasgow is, of course, the base of Nicola Sturgeon's power base. She's the MSP there, as is Hamza Yousaf. And I think what's interesting is that Kate Forbes represents the uh, the constituency of Sky, Lochaber, and Bagnall, which actually overlaps in Blackford's constituency, Westminster constituency. Um, and 
she, I think, really represents that own nationalist, kind of Alex Salmon kind of nationalist. She's also, of course, was an MSP for many years in Aberdeenshire East, uh, which is, uh, which of course, is in a rural constituency. So it seems that, and when Nicola Sturgeon took over the leadership in 2014, I think one of the things she did do was to shift the SNP to much more of a centre-centre-left position. And I think Kate Forbes definitely was the more centrist candidate and represented the political right wing of the SNP, a more business friendly SNP. And she has openly talked about the fact that the route through independence is through economic growth. So very much a much more centrist message on independence. And I think reflective of the fact that she represents a much more rural and the older nationalist constituency. And as we can see, Sam, that is still a big component of the party, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's worth also pointing out, um, there was a fantastic quote in The Guardian by John Crace where he said that Hamza Youssef managed to turn a one-horse race into a close contest in less than six weeks. Do you think that sums up this race? Do you think it was his to lose and somehow he made it much closer than he ever needed to make it? I absolutely agree. Let's just take a look at the varying endorsements of how many MS MPs and MSPs endorse Hamza Youssef versus Kate Forbes. Now, Hamza Yusuf was endorsed by 33 MSPs and 18 MPs, whereas Kate Forbes was endorsed by 11 MSPs and 4 MPs only. And these 11 MSPs includes Ivan McKee, who of course was her former campaign manager, but later dropped out of it. So I think it did show that he had some of the establishment backing, and Kate Forbes was quite searing of the criticism on Hamza Yusuf's recording government. You know, there's a memorial debate clip, which I'm sure Scottish Labour and the Scottish Conservatives will be playing all over come the next general election, criticising his record as transport minister with the ferries and justice secretary and health secretary. And yet, I think that really showed is that there is some disquiet within the SNP over Hamza Yusuf. And I think that this, if in one sentence, this election, this leadership election was between competency and ideology. Kate Forbes was seen as competent, but her ideology, particularly on social issues, was seen as problematic. Hamza Yusuf had the opposite problem, where he was seen as much more ideologically closer to the base, but had questions about competency. And it seems that in this election, which don't agree, Sam, that uh, the latter, i.e. closeness of economic and social ideology, seemed to be the bigger deciding factor in how SFP members decided who their next leader would be, isn't it? It definitely seemed that way, but as you pointed out at the start, the closeness, I think, of the second round proves that ideology, Hamza Yusuf's ideology did not triumph resoundingly in this election. And I think what was really interesting is that a few individuals, notably, I think most notably John Swinney, who at the start of this campaign was assumed to not going to endorse any candidate in this race, felt the need to come out and publicly endorse Hamza Youssef. I thought it was a really notable moment in this campaign where I think the SNP establishment, or at least the Nicola Sturgeon orbit, felt like they really needed to get behind what was presumed to be their preferred candidate in Hamza Youssef in this campaign, um, which I thought was a very interesting moment as well. Actually, it's very interesting you talked about the the geographic distribution of uh, endorsements, because have you seen the constituencies in which um, Kate Forbes members, um, drew her support from? Because she won no support of MSPs in Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Dundee, and she did win a couple in Glasgow, but that's because there's a lot more SNP members in Glasgow. But she was able to draw more support from rural, who represent rural areas, you know, places like Eyre, which is a small um, Eyre, Cowan Beef, Inverness, you know, Midlothian, South Tweedale and Lauderdale. These are more rural parts of Scotland, whereas it does seem that she was a real turn off more urban members. Of the S of of SNP MSPs and MPs. In fact, I can tell you that she drew. She definitely drew. Won't you agree, Sam? Most of her support, even among MSPs and MPs from the more rural elements of the party, or MSPs and MPs have more represent rural interests, much more than urban interests. And in the modern SNP, you can't win a leadership election without it, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. So if you had to sum it up, how did Hamza Youssef win this contest? I think he won because he was seen as the continuity Sturgeon candidate. And in the end, despite all her faults, and in particular, despite the rather acrimonious way in which the Gender Recognition Act played out, I think this is really showing the extent to which the SNP itself has been transformed into a centre-left organisation enough to carry Hamza Yusuf across the line. I think that that was one reason why he was seen as a contingency sturgeon candidate, in particular on social issues, he was seen as much more liberal than Kate Forbes, despite questions about his commitment or his views on gay marriage, he was seen as a more socially liberal candidate. He also, I think, represented the next generation of the SNP. Both he and Kate Forbes do represent the next generation SNP. And I think the SNP membership acknowledged that some things have to change, but they do not want wholesale changes to certainly what Ash Regan, or to a lesser extent, Kate Forbes was willing to do. What do you think, Sam? I completely agree. I think the key thing here is one continuity sturgeon which ultimately was popular amongst the members it seemed and two the other two were offering a much more radical break from the current policies and procedures within the party even going as far to questioning the butte house agreement which is with the green party which is keeping the snp in power in scotland and i think the thought from enough members of one breaking significantly from policies which might affect their electoral performance, and two, immediately causing a problem for the government by putting a fracture between the two main pro-independence parties in Scotland as well, I think was enough to get Hamza Yusuf across the line. Because as you pointed out at the start, and I think the John Crace quote perfectly embodies, um, Hamza Yusuf was a flawed candidate in, in many people's eyes. I mean, in a lot of the ratings, he was not seen as competent. He was not seen as trustworthy. Um, I think, to say the least, his record in some of his public service delivery jobs has been patchy, um, which his immediate job as health secretary, he has presided over some of the longest waiting times um, in, in the NHS across the UK. So it is interesting that you did just, I think some of these continuity and policy related things, as you hinted at the start with ideology, were enough to get him across the line. But I don't think this was really a resounding win. And I don't think it represents a huge endorsement of Hamza Youssef as a candidate. I think the other thing as well is that, don't forget, there's one person who I think um, endorsed Kate Forbes, who I think turned out to be a harm, and that's Alex Salmon, the former First Minister of Scotland. I do wonder whether some of the votes for Hans Jesus, because Alex Salmon, obviously the, the issues surrounding the allegations and treatment towards women, the fact that he left the SNP, he argued Nicola Sturgeon went to form the very small Alba party. I wonder if, in the end, that that endorsement hurt, and the way he was seen as particularly after Hans Yusuf hurt, Kate Forbes itself in a weird way. But Seth, I can't escape a nagging feeling about this leadership election. I'm, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts about this. If you are a Hamza Yusuf voter, did you vote for Hamza Yusuf because you liked Hamza Yusuf or because you disliked Kate Forbes more and vice versa? Did you vote for Kate Forbes more because you had questions about the competency as we discussed of Hamza Yusuf? Was this a, was SAP members' decision-making process driven by the fact that they, that this was their, their most preferred option out of two bad choices? I mean, I think that's the burning question, really. And I think it's one that we'll not really ever have an answer to. But my, my gut tells me that I think these votes were much more ideologically based than candidate based, because what you had in Hamza Youssef and Kate Forbes was two people who represented the traditional divide in the Scottish National Party movement, which is you had Kate Force representing the rural nationalist, almost more conservative elements of the Scottish National Party, and Hamza Youssef being unashamedly progressive, representing the more contemporary ideological approach of the Scottish National Party. And, and to understand this a bit more, I think you have to go back to early Alex Salmon days in the party, because 
he was kicked out of the Scottish National Party in the seventy in the early eighties because he was a member of the seventy nine group, which were trying to make the Scottish National Party more expressly socialist. And that divide goes all the way back to when the Scottish National Party first entered UK House of Commons and famously ended up bringing down the Callaghan government to pave the way for Margaret Thatcher. It's a, if you don't know it, it's a fascinating story. Um, go go have a look at it. But those divides in the SNP are 50 years old. And it's interesting that we're still seeing them today. And I think this is what this contest embodied ultimately and the choice of candidate, I think, my sense, comes more down to which side of that argument are you on? And therefore, are you going to vote for Yusuf, who represents one side of it, or Kate Forbes, who represents the other? Yeah, the, that documentary or that whole period, and I think this BBC documentary over that confidence vote in 1970, was absolutely fascinating. And one of the quotes about politics I always remember was from that period when I think it was the dead Labour Prime Minister, Jim Callaghan, who said that, when the SNP voted for the vote to no confidence in 1979 over the Labour government's, uh, the failure of the devolution referendum at that point was Callaghan described it as Turkey's voting for an early Christmas because you know, they were essentially voting to trigger the election, which were anyway the polls were going to show they're going to lose most of the seats, which did happen. So I thought that was one of the, the lies that I've remembered from many, many Ties mm. of watching and politics. The other piece of evidence, I think, for this being more ideologically based than candidate based is the final poll that came out. And this is a huge asterisk because opinion polling for this contest was tricky because it's very difficult to poll a membership, specifically a, sp a small membership like the SNP. But this was a poll of Scottish people in general had Kate Forbes as the preferred candidate on 33%. It then had Hamza Youssef on 18%, but 36% of people said don't know. So most people didn't favour the person who won this contest in Scotland, but most people beyond that couldn't choose between them at all. So you have a situation, I think, where neither candidate was particularly resoundingly popular amongst the Scottish people. And I wonder if that will carry into the years to come. Interesting. Um, that high don't know factor could be Hamza Yusuf's opportunity because I think there's a lot of, I think the problem is that when Sturgeon resigned, she didn't, one of the criticisms it could be said is that she didn't really have a successor in mind. I don't think John Sweeney was ever seen as a Sturgeon's, um, a person with Sturgeon's successor. I think Kate Forbes was always thought as a potential, but I think it still came a little bit too early in the piece. And certainly when she resigned, she was on maternity leave, I think disadvantaged her in a way. Um, so I think he has a high don't know to work from. The issue is that certain Kate Swap's searing criticism of him has that shaped the public's initial mood or suddenly the fact that he was the previous health secretary before he came to government, suddenly the initial form thoughts might not be so positive, so limiting the chance of a honeymoon, but he still has the opportunity, I think, to shape people's minds and opinions that not necessarily that Sturgeon was, was became, in the end, a little bit polarizing. People loved her or hated her. And I think she acknowledged herself in her resignation is that she had exhausted all the avenues she could and pushed independence as high as possible. And that's what Salmon did when he resigned was that in 2014 was that he had pushed independence as much as possible. Nicholas Sturgeon has taken it one step ahead and pushed it as much as possible. It now seems you need another leader to push it again, that one step to bring it over the 50% threshold. But the problem is, is that I'm struggling when, and do you agree with me, Sam? Is Hamza use of that man? Because I'm struggling to see, and the evidence is not that convincing so far, is it? Yeah, I mean, the independence question is one that's going to um, dominate quite a lot of Hamza Yusuf's first few years in office. But one thing I think that was interesting about this campaign is, yes, independence was a theme and it was predominantly a theme because Ash Regan made it the absolute focal point of her campaign. But what was interesting was that this campaign, I think, much more focused on a whole wealth of other issues that the Scottish government uh, have been and need to be dealing with. 
Um, and I think Hamza Youssef and Kate Forbes were having a debate on those issues, whilst Ash Regan in the background was trying to make it all about independence. So independence wasn't really front and centre in this campaign, I think, from what I saw of it. Let's move on to talk about Nicola Sturgeon, because I think that we can't... She has been a titan of Scottish politics. I mean, the turmoil... How many Conservative leaders did she have? She was elected a leader of the SNP where David Cameron was Prime Minister, which is just such a long time ago. It's when I first started um, studying politics. She was the longest serving First Minister, the first woman to hold the office. Um, interestingly, um, Sam, I'm not sure if you noticed, but in her resignation statement, um, which was quite a long resignation statement, um, unlike previous resignation statements I have seen. Um, did you notice the colour of the dress that she wore? I did not, know. She wore red, which is the same colour Theresa May did when she resigned as Prime Minister, as she announced her resignation, and the same dress, same colour as when Margaret Thatcher resigned as Prime Minister as well. It's interesting fact there. Um, but what is the broader legacy of Nicola Sturgeon as leader of the SNP, Seth. And do you think that the fact that 48% of the SNP members voted for candidates who are much more critical, Ash Regan over the Gender Recognition Act, which she resigned off, and Kate Forbes certainly did criticize certain aspects of the Sturgeon government, what is, what is her legacy in Scottish politics? I mean, I think predominantly her legacy is that she was a very impressive political figure across the UK, impressive campaigner and impressive public speaker. And I think testament to that is the fact that the Scottish National Party under her leadership had five pretty resounding election wins. I mean, starting off in 2015, where they won 56 of 59 Scottish seats in the UK general election. 2016 Scottish Parliament election, 2021 Scottish Parliament election, they basically held on to quite a sizable minority status. And then both in the 2017 and 2019 general election, yes, they fell back on that 2015 performance, but it was, but not significantly and still remained by far the largest party in Scotland. So I think that is testament to her record as leader. And back in 2015, when we first had these seven party election debates in the general election, she was consistently ranked as the best, if not one of the best, performers in those debates, despite the fact that a very small amount of UK viewers could actually vote for her and her party. So I think that just shows how the wider UK viewed her as an impressive political performer. And in the first, in a YouGov poll that came out just after she resigned, 50% of people said she was a good leader. 32% of people said she was a bad leader um, and 41% of people said the pandemic was her greatest achievement. So I think she's viewed pretty favourably still by the Scottish people and, and some of the UK population more widely. And for sure, I think she has been ingrained in the UK zeitgeist in a way that her predecessor, Alex Salmond, never really did. I think a lot of people would, if you were asked to name some of the main UK political figures, I think Nicola Sturgeon would be would be up there um, in the whole UK population. And I think that is a big credit to her um, ability and presence as, as a national leader in, in the UK. I mean, there are some um, downsides to her legacy, which is that I don't think independence became any closer under her leadership than it was eight years ago. Um, if, if anything, I think it's marginally further away. Um, and also the, her legacy in government has not been particularly good either, because as I said earlier, the waiting time's the longest they have been in A&E. Um, drug deaths are the highest in Europe. Um, and the attainment gap in education is large and growing. So there are questions to this legacy, and I think time will amend that legacy and potentially could potentially improve it, could potentially um, make it worse. But I think the biggest legacy for me is that she has been, and I think will continue to be, quite a totemic political figure in the UK. Um, and whether she's remembered for better or for worse, I think she will be remembered. I think what you're speaking about is her legacy as a communicator, isn't it? 
the fact that she was able to communicate her points both on the debate stage. And suddenly, I think during COVID in particular, some of her press conferences were actually, she actually helped set UK government policy by being, not only by doing it in Scotland first, but then communicating in such a way that it forced the UK government to then follow along to the Scottish government policy in a way. So I think her legacy of a com- as a communicator is is un- is one of the best that I've seen. And it probably helped explain her unparalleled electoral success. But I do agree with what you hinted at there, which is some of her pol- particularly domestic policy stance could be questioned in the future, in the months and years to come. You know, drug deaths, health, education, po- child poverty. And I do agree with you that the singular goal of the SAP, and I think a big reason why she was often seen, particularly in the early years, was she was seen as the woman to bring Scotland to independence. The reality is that if you judge it based on that simple criteria, she has not been able to do that. And I do I agree did, that... I did wonder, though, do you think it is harsh to judge her on independence, given that she was the immediate successor to the independence referendum? And as we see around the world, when these sort of things fail to get over the line, that... To, to sort of expect the immediate successor to deliver that kind of referendum again, despite the will of the wider British government being against it, um, would be harsh? Do you think that's harsh or do you think it's fair? I think yes and no. I think it is not... Given that she stated from the start that she wanted to leave Scotland independence, the fact that she didn't deliver it, I think does suggest that that is part of a legacy. However... She has kept independence at roughly the same level and in fact leading in some polls, opinion polls that were conducted, particularly when the UK government under Boris Johnson became severely unpopular, she kept Scottish independence within striking distance of albeit maintaining what they got in 2014 or improving their margin a little bit. And I think that considering that in 2014, you know, the promises of once in a generation referendum, they were able to maintain that level, not only a short period of time, but over largely throughout her eight years as first minister. And I think that is to be commended upon. So I think with any questions, it's not as clear cut as a yes or no. I think she does deserve credit for maintaining that level and building on the foundations a bit. But nonetheless, she failed to achieve her ultimate end as a politician. And that's something she herself acknowledged that she wanted to do, but she had just had nothing left in the tank to mm. or avenues to exploit to bring Scotland to independence. It's interesting also the party management legacy. We've been hinting it a few times in this um, podcast, but obviously the SNP remained a very tight ship in terms of MSPs and MPs, where really what Nicola Sturgeon said the party line was, everyone... Um, parroted it, which for a political party is quite an achievement because we see in the Conservatives and Labour, which are much larger parties, both geographically and in number of people. But the SNP were really disciplined under Nicola Sturgeon. However, in the background, the membership was absolutely plummeting. Do you think that is part of Nicola Sturgeon's legacy? I think the membership was inflated in the immediate aftermath of the independence referendum. Uh, I I don't and I think it's coming down from a natural um a, a natural high point and that suddenly over the last year or so the SNP has run into more policy difficulties as the government itself has aged but I think I just give this simple stat and I think she it does explain why or uh, the extent to which the Scottish National Party has grown not only in Scotland, but in the nation's consciousness, is that when Alex Salmon was elected leader in 2004, which is the last time there was a contested leadership, he won 75.8% of the vote, or 4,952 votes. That is all. You fast forward nearly 20 years later, and it is remarkable that Ash Regan, who only got 11%, got 5,599 nominal votes. So I think that, yes, there have been issues. If you look at the short term, that it certainly has been declining, and I think that could be attributed to the increased scrutiny of how the SNP has governed Scotland. But if you do take a longer term view of 20 years in frontline politics, and a lot of the salmon years K 
can be is often thought it's a salmon sturgeon government because she did play a prominent role upon it. In fact, Alex Shaman shifted her in twenty uh in the later part of his tenureship so that she she could focus on the independence referendum. It really does show that they have brought the party to a whole new level if you take a longer term view of it. So that's a really interesting discussion of Sturgeon's legacy, and I'm sure it's something that um many political observers will continue to impact for years to come. But Chen, I wanted to talk about briefly about Hamza Yusuf's cabinet and whether that gives us any clues as to what's next for the Scottish National Party, what he wants his government to look like. So for you, what's sort of your headline view of this cabinet? And are there any notable appointments you wanted to look at? Well, first of all, I would say that whoever won the SNP leadership election, be it Hamza Yusuf or Kate Forbes, I think this cabinet would have looked very different depending on who had won. The first thing I will say is that the first thing that struck me was the sheer number of supporters he put in. I believe nine out of the 10 were Yusuf supporters. I'm not sure that is particularly wise, given you only won the leadership by 52% compared to your opponent's 48%. And I do know in the in the, the, the days that have been since the government's formation, there have been some murmurings and on in the background um, on by uh, Kate Ford supporters about the the and trying to try to carve out and expressing some minor levels of dissent of over over some of the appointments, which I think is interesting. Um, it is a majority female cabinet, I will know. And a much younger cabinet with half its members under the age of 40, I think is really trying to show that this is a new SNP and trying to really show that, you know, don't judge my government on some of the um, failures of the past. This is a new government looking forward. Now, turning to the, let's take a look at the cabinet level, because I think that's really interesting. He offered Kate Forbes rural affairs. Now, that's just that's just a post of, well, we're offering something, but we don't really want her in cabinet. To go from finance economy to rural affairs, I doubt anybody would have accepted that brief. But some of the new people that he has brought on into cabinet, I felt were, they leave me some questions. The One of them that stood out to me was Angela Constance, that she's been brought back into cabinet itself. She has had a record in and out of government. She was previously the drugs minister where she was in charge of a record increase in the number of drug deaths as well. She was the education secretary, where she, of course, saw a, a big increase in the entertainment gap. And she was also cabinet secretary for community, social security and equalities. In fact, there was a famous quote, I think Nicholas Sturgeon cited her three times and brought her back three times. So I, I wonder what kind of that does say that of the level of the talent pool she, that he was able to draw upon. So that appointment raised eyebrows to me. The the lack of a Kate Ford's appointment we talked about as well. And again, Shauna Robertson being finance secretary was something I did not expect because, again, she was another of the former health secretaries like Hamza Yousaf who resigned over the SNP's failures in health and now she's the deputy first minister. And it's really interesting to me that he put NHS recovery in Michael Matheson's um, title of NHS recovery, health, and social care, having been the previous health secretary, does that imply the NHS went down under his tenure? That name question also um, interested me. So Sam, what are your thoughts? Kate Forbes, Angela Constance, and NHS recovery and the health portfolio itself. I mean, Kate Forbes, I think not only would she turn it down because it's a demotion, I know a few people were talking about how it would have been impossible for Kate Forbes to accept the rural job specifically because she represents a Highland constituency and balancing that job with the Butte House agreement probably could have cost her her seat because of how, um, how unaligned Green Party priorities are with rural community priorities in Scotland. So that's interesting as well. Potentially, he offered her that specifically. Um, it's also what you talked about, Hamza Yusuf surrounding himself by allies and endorsers. Well, it's even worse than that, because in the 28 strong ministerial team more widely, how many Kate Forbes endorsers are present? 
Very little is my answer because I do know she also he also sat people like Ivan McKee as well. But I'm sure you can tell me the exact yeah. number. One, one person, Siobhan Brown, who is now the Victims and Community Safety Minister, is the only person in this entire ministerial team who endorsed Kate Forbes. So it is interesting how absent any opposition supporters are in this um in this cabinet um, and ministerial team more widely. And there are no Ash Regan supporters, but she didn't really have any MSP supporters. So that's not not difficult. Um, so this cabinet is very much a cabinet in Hamza Yusuf's image, in Hamza Yusuf's ideology. Um, and it's also a cabinet in Nicola Sturgeon's ideology because six of the 10 cabinet names are Nicola Sturgeon retentions. Not all of them have kept the same job, but six of the people who are in Nicola Sturgeon's cabinet of 10 are still in this cabinet of 10, which I think is quite a, a high number um, for a fresh cabinet, especially for someone like Hamza Youssef, who wasn't even her, her deputy at the time. Um, and the interesting ministerial appointments, they go all the way down. We've got two people who have been brought back by Hamza Youssef who were sacked by Nicola Sturgeon for various controversies. Jill Fitzpatrick was sacked in 2020 as public health minister following the rapid rise in drug deaths. Well, he is now minister for local government empowerment and planning. And Gillian Martin was sacked in 2018 before even starting in her position of a racist, anti-Semitic, ableist and transphobic comments on blog posts. Well, now she is back in, in government as well. And interestingly enough, one interesting new position is we now have Jamie Hepburn as Minister for Independence. He's been a long-term MSP since 2007 and in government since 2014. And this will be his fifth ministerial role, um, working closely alongside Angus Robertson as the Constitution Secretary to try and deliver that goal of independence. So you do see that focus lower down in the ministerial ranks. But really, I think the biggest... The, the most notable takeaway from this cabinet is the lack of churn, the lack of opposition support in the cabinet, and also bringing back a lot of familiar names, but not for very positive reasons. I agree. And I think that makes it very interesting indeed. The question I have, Sam, is, is the renewal of Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater as the two Green co-leaders a good move for Hamza Yousaf, you reckon? Because they have retained their portfolios, Patrick Harvey, Zero Carbon Buildings, Active Travel and Tenant Rights, and Lorna Slater over Green Skills, Circular Economy and Biodiversity. I do know that one of the issues, and do correct me if I'm wrong, there were some issues regarding the recycling scheme that was championed for Lorna Slater. Is the presence of the Green co-leaders a good thing, you reckon, from the SNP's perspective? I think it's a good thing for the wider independence movement, because they are the other major pro-independence party in in Scottish politics and Kate Forbes and Ash Regan both of which were going to jeopardize the boot house agreement and therefore the cordial relations between the Greens and the SNP so I think long term it's a positive thing that this relationship has been maintained but whether that translates into a long-term positive for the SNP support is a different question because, as I said, a lot of the policies they're championing are not particularly popular in the more rural heartlands of the SNP. So it will be interesting to see whether they can balance that because, obviously, they hold very sizable majorities in those kind of constituencies, so overturning them will be quite a feat. But on the list side, it could potentially become a problem. The other thing I found interesting and final thought on the cabinet itself is the fact that the deputy leader, Keith Brown, who was the Justice and Veterans Affairs Secretary, was sacked. That portfolio went to Angela Constance, who I talked about. It seems weird to me that the deputy leader of the party is not in the cabinet. Like I understand there have been, in, there have been previous roles where they have not served as deputy first minister or deputy leader of the government, but to not even be in cabinet, I think is quite interesting, isn't it? See, I think that has a lot to do with what is going on at SNP HQ, because I think Keith Brown will be having to play quite a large role in building back together an SNP party infrastructure that throughout this short leadership campaign has completely fallen apart. So I think maybe the intention is that Keith Brown will be leading that operation, but time will tell. Possibly that could be one uh one way one one reason why it was sacked. And not only that, the SNP are not only looking for not only having a new leader, they have yet to appoint a new chief executive 
who of course was Peter Morrow, Nicholas Sturgeon's husband. So they clearly within the SNP organization will have lots of issues, particularly with the row over membership and finance. There's clearly a lot of internal party issues and management issues that needs to take place. Um, I should also note that one interesting appointment is Jenny Guilford, the former teacher, to be the Cabinet Secretary for Education and Skills. You know who she's married to, right, Sam? Somebody called Kezia Dugdale, the former leader of Scottish Labour and former I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here contestant. Isn't that interesting, isn't it? It's excellent how much of a small world politics is. Indeed. And I think on that note, let's just wrap up our podcast by talking about what's next for the SNP. And crucially, with this leadership change, will Scottish Labour be feeling more happy about this? Or with the Scottish Tories? Yeah, I mean, these are all interesting questions. I think what was interesting, which is news that has seemingly broken overnight, is that there are some rumours in Scottish Conservative circles that they're going to encourage their supporters to vote Scottish Labour in constituencies across Scotland just to stop the dominance of the Nationalists, which I think is really fascinating. I'm sure the Westminster Conservatives will have something to say about that. But I think both opposition parties are seeing this as a big opportunity because at the top of Scottish nationalist politics, basically for well over 20 years, with the exception of that four-year period where John Swinney was leader, has been dominated by Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond. Both of those characters are now out of the picture. We have a completely new infrastructure and they will be having to build name recognition and national support very quickly and from from the ground up um, and both opposition parties i think see a big opportunity in this moment and you see it in opinion polls already that the snp support is starting to fall and particularly the support of scottish labor is is rising in accordance with the more national uk opinion polling as well um in terms of what's next for the snp i think they will have an immediate um test of where their support is at because there is a by-election looming in the Westminster constituency of Rutherglen and Hamilton West following the 30-day suspension of Margaret Ferrier over COVID rule-breaking, which I think will inevitably lead to a recall petition and by-election. Well, this was SNP in 2015 and 2019 um, with a 5,230 majority in 2019. But in 2017, this went back to Labour on a majority of 265. And I think on current national polling trends, would once again return to the Labour Party. But how dramatically it returns to the Labour Party could be very telling about what is the state of SNP support across Scotland and could be a very early negative test for Hamza Yusuf's leadership in this party as well. And it'll be the first test of the theory that the post-Sturgeon SNP is a weaker electoral entity and has a lot of legwork to put in. So, yes, we're not expecting... um, wider electoral tests until at least mid to late 2024 with a general election and not until 2026 with a Scottish Parliament election. But I think Hamza Yusuf does have quite a lot of immediate work to do. I think that last sentence really sums up what I was going to say, what's next for the SNP, is that there's a lot of work ahead of Hamza Yusuf, not only internally to heal a divided party, but to convince a sceptical Scottish public that he is capable of not only um, uh, leading the government effectively because there's questions around competence, but also for towards SNP members, whether he is the man to lead the part the country to independence. And I think this is opportunity, and the unionists certainly know this, for the, both Labour and the Conservatives, that this is the chance for them to pounce. And I think Scottish Labour, because of the fact the SNP takes more seats from the Scottish from the Labour side of politics and the, the centre-left side of politics under Sturgeon, then the Conservative side, I think definitely Labour is looking upon this with a lot of eager anticipation. And it's interesting as well that they also have a Pakistani ethnic minority leader in Scotland, in Anasawa as well. So that's interesting as well to talk about ethnic diversity across the UK, not only and within Scottish politics as well. Um, I think from the the Labour Party's view is that they just have to keep pointing out that and questions of Hamza Yousaf's 
um, record in government, I think he has to look a lot. I think independence certainly in the short term has to be very much a second order to try and run an effective government or to set up an effective government. Because I think the periods in which independence in Scotland has performed well, we certainly look over the COVID pandemic, is when Scott, the SNP is able to perform or communicate an effective government in Scotland representing Scottish interests versus a Westminster government that is seen as out of touch with Scottish interests and not advocating for Scottish interests as well. I think with the Conservatives in Scotland, there is a Conservatives in power in Westminster, there is still the opportunity, albeit closing as Labour closes in on a national victory, but it does mean that Hamza Yusuf has to look more internally and to portray competence that not and to solve some of the issues and tap onto the nerve that suddenly Kate Forbes is able to. Hmm. Um, what's next for the so lots of work ahead for Hamza Yusuf, lots of work ahead for the party, and lots of electoral tests ahead. It is certainly, I think, would you not agree, Sam, going to be a much more turbulent time of Scot in Scottish politics than we certainly had been used to over the last eight years, isn't it? For sure. And just as a final comment on the SNP future, obviously we have a very divided party, as we've been suggesting a lot in this podcast. And there have been a lot of comparisons drawn to another UK leader who was elected in a surprisingly narrow victory, then proceeded to fill the cabinet with supporters and brushed up big opposition candidates to the back benches and didn't particularly stick around for very long. Um, and I think Hamza Youssef will be hoping that he doesn't follow the path of that other UK leader. Well, it is funny though, because isn't it an ethnic minority replacing a female leader? Also sounds very familiar though for the UK Conservative Party, doesn't it, Sam? Well, we'll have to see what happens in the months, week, in the weeks, months and years to come. But for now, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Do join us again on our next podcast in the next few weeks, where we will be unpacking the results from New South Wales um, state election in Australia. And as always, we'll continue to keep you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at at ballot underscore talk, where at least this week we'll be covering two national elections in Europe, where Finland and Bulgaria are both going to the polls today. And you can also leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. We also welcome any feedback or comments to ballots to talk about at gmail.com. My name is Sam and until next time, we'll speak to you soon. <laughs> <laughs>